Welcome all, and uh, here we are at another Pragmatic Institute product chat webinar and podcast series uh, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. I'm Eddie Gordon, courseware designer at Pragmatic Institute and today's host. A reminder as we begin, uh, if you're joining us in the Zoom, uh, turn on your camera if you can. Uh, it's just a little uh, bit of the much missed humanity. I think we can all benefit from these days. And uh, I know our, our presenters enjoy seeing the faces as well. So if you're in a place where you can turn those cameras on so we can see your smile. You have questions as we go through the presentation today. Don't be shy about putting those over in the chat. You can put those, you can address those either to everybody if you want to, or you can send them just to myself, Eddie Gordon. I'll keep an eye over there and toss them over to our presenter as they come in. And at the top here, I have to give a shout out to the Pragmatic Alumni Community. It's a new program here at Pragmatic Institute that we are very proud of. Uh, it is exclusive, members only, but if you choose to join the pack, you will find there a curated library, peer discussions, member exclusive events, even access to our Pragmatic Institute instructors who will visit there and make themselves available to you, uh, all with the goal of you spending less time searching for answers and more time implementing solutions at your businesses. And I believe if you're quick to act right now, uh, pack memberships are available at an introductory rate of 30% off the list price. So jump on that while you can there. Pragmaticinstitute.com slash community is where you'll find info about that. And also a mention to our partner. Today's discussion is brought to you in partnership with Product Development Days as part of their existing series of webinars. That will all culminate in their grand event, which happens the 27th through the 30th of October. So find out more about that at the website, productdevelopmentdays.com. Enough of the chat now. It is time to introduce our guest today, who is back for a special encore presentation <laughs> by popular demand. He is a partner and strategy design sensei at Business Models, Inc. He's the author of the book, Design a Better Business, New Tools, Skills, and Mindset for Strategy Innovation, and author of the upcoming book, Business Model Shifts. He has the impressive ability to get groups thinking like startups and industry disruptors. Please welcome back, Justin Lokitz. Justin, it is so good yeah. to see you again. Welcome back. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much, Eddie. It's a really, really warm welcome. Well, and uh, welcome everyone else. Thank you so much for coming. As you can see, if you're looking between the screen and, and what I have here presented in, in my face, you can see quite a few changes. I've obviously been locked in my home for a while. Uh, I'm here in San Francisco, which means none of our services are open yet and they probably won't be for a while. Uh, so I now have to wear a hat, otherwise my hair is everywhere. And you can also see that I've really not shaven my beard either. This is the way it goes today, and uh, I hope you're all okay with this. It's just a little screen that you're looking at of me. Um, as I mentioned, quick intro uh, just ab about me. I, I do live in San Francisco. What you're seeing me of me right now is me actually looking out a, a window from my attic, 
because when I'm not doing this or not in a room uh, working with people, when that was a thing, I, I much prefer to be outside and, and moving around, which actually works out well for me here in San Francisco in my home where I can actually look out a window and, and see what's going on outside. Um, prior to what, doing what I do today, I, I come from really big enterprises. So I sort of cut my teeth in big tech in a big company called Oracle uh, starting about 2000, where I did just about everything you could do there from sales and sales engineering uh, to some software engineering and then moved to a bunch of uh, consulting and product strategy. I left there and went through some startups that were eaten by other companies that were eaten by other companies, eventually eaten by giant uh, Swedish holding firms like Hexagon. Uh, and so I've sort of seen a lot in the startup world and, and also being eaten up by other companies in that world and, and ended my sort of big enterprise career working for a, another large software company called Autodesk. Uh, that's a design software company. And the entire time I was there, I was doing product management and, and product strategy. Uh, a few years back now, about five and a half years ago, I, I left uh, that Autodesk and sort of that big enterprise company role to start something called Business Models Inc. US, which is a uh, basically is a we're, we're a design strategy company and we're a small but global team so i run the u.s team but we have teams in netherlands and taiwan and australia and what we do is we design and redesign businesses and we work on business model and innovation and, and strategy and, and everything in between those um, and the way we think about these things is often co-creating and co-creating with teams so not going and delivering a report uh, but also working with teams to, to create their own futures. And just as often that looks like working with really other big enterprise companies, um, you know, some that I used to work for uh, certainly, but others that you can sort of see in this list. And there's many, many more. So from all of that work and from all those things, you know, there's a lot that I could talk about today. Uh, there's, and we put a lot of what we do into books. And so as Eddie mentioned, I had a hand in, in co-writing and co-authoring Design a Better Business. And what we're going to talk about today is not the book, uh, but really fundamental business model shifts we're seeing in the world um, and where those things are going. And, and you know, many of them that are totally relevant in today's context, especially uh, with where we are with this crazy global pandemic and locked in the home, but also what happens to businesses then. And so we'll talk a bit about that today. The way I framed this webinar is sort of a why, what, and how. And so why, are, why do we do anything? What could we do about it? And then how do we actually do that? Uh, we have about 30, 35-ish minutes to do all that. I have a lot of stuff to talk about. But what I'll do is I'll sort of just launch right into it. And at different points, I'll take a quick little break to see if Eddie has some questions lined up. And then we'll, we'll continue on. You'll note that I've, I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing guy here. So we can kind of go in a lot of different directions, but I'll try to just keep on course for now. So when we think about business model shifts, I think the first thing to think about is why, why are they relevant and, and what's going on in the world uh, in a larger context, even beyond this very you know specific moment in time, why are things so relevant? Well, in my world, and I see, again, I see a lot of businesses and I work with a lot of businesses and executive teams all over the globe. And every day I come across companies that are dying. In fact, 
more often than not, I'm hired by an executive team, not just because they want to shift or change, but because they must shift or change. Otherwise, they'll die. Um, there were, you know, here a couple months ago when we were sort of put in lockdown, uh, Yure Tovalon uh, put out a real, some really cool new icons, some really new lo cool new logos for, you know, some of the most beloved companies in the world. And I thought that's really funny, but also really interesting because it's totally true, right? You see Corona beer in the first, they need a new name. You see United, it's now divided. Uh, the U.S. Open is not U.S. Open anymore. It's really U.S. closed. And of course, plenty of us have heard stories of people going and ordering coffee in Starbucks. Well, you now see the mermaid is, is wearing a, a face mask. But this isn't just a current context. You see this every single day, you know, outside of this context. Companies that have been doing well for a long time are not able to do the same things they used to do and prosper, and certainly not sustainably, right? And that's because change is totally exponential. Uh, change is compounding on itself, and, and that's business change. It's also fundamentally what people want uh, and need our customers, whether we're B2B or B2C or somewhere B2G or somewhere in the middle of those, uh, but also it's technologies and everything else. It also has to do with the global center of gravity is shifting in many respects, right? So we're, we're you know, in many cases, we used to think of the West being Europe and, and the US and Canada and so forth as being the, the center of power. It's whatever we think, it's, we're globalized today. And we're really starting to see some interesting movement in places like India. And even though these, these articles are a little old here, the movement to India and China and other places where these business models are starting to take, take shape there and blossom and grow whole new markets for crazy new things, this is happening and this is changing the way we think about business in the West as well. But as part of that also, we're seeing customers are changing and customer attitudes. Again, it doesn't matter if it's B2B or B2C or B2G, any one of those things People are people, and we're more empowered every day to do something different with our lives, and and really, you know, enable we're enabled to to do new things and empowered to create new things in our lives that we weren't before, and we're coming to expect it, right? So, for instance, in legal support, we've gone from really expensive lawyers who would need to take care of lots of things for us, like creating new businesses, to things like this rocket lawyer. When I started Business Models Inc. here in the U.S., I didn't even go to a lawyer. I actually did most of it for 45 bucks on Rocket Lawyer. And really, it's all legal. It's already set up. And I could do all that with just a few clicks of a button. You all know this story, right? Mobility from ownership, especially in this context, to pay when you need. Uh, one of my colleagues, she's found that you know she doesn't even use the car anymore. She got rid of her car. And now she just, especially in this COVID context, she just rents a car when she needs it and she gets whatever she wants when she rents it. Certainly, you know this story, right? Shopping from physical nine to five stores to, to delivery, shopping and delivery and getting things anytime you need it. And even more so, you know, having services like Amazon be able to put things inside of your home uh, when you're there and get to drop things off in specific places when you're not there, when you need it in a very specific place. And of course, when you want something now, whatever those things are, you can actually get it. And here's a Chinese website with an actual get a divorce button, right? And these things, while this is maybe a, a funny or a not so funny thing here, it's real, right? As consumers, we're empowered 
to do these things every day. And we expect to be able to do these things even in our business lives. We also see that there's omnipresent technology everywhere that's enabling this stuff. Um, in many cases, it's hidden. And so while we've talked about artificial intelligence for a long time, whether you know it or not, this is now just embedded in everything we do. It's not about the technology, it's about the business models and embedding this as a resource, enabling some of these things to happen behind the scenes. And when you start pairing these technologies with other technologies, again, whether you believe the hype or not, this is happening. When you start pairing with these things, with other things, blockchain, nanotech, uh, IoT, so forth, everything changes. And so some of that why then is embedded in all these changes in the world, in our, in our needs as consumers, business or otherwise, and also technology. But also, right, we have other fundamental needs that, were, that are really popping up and have been popping up for the last few decades, which is solving this, right? We take from forests and other you know, valuable resources, we make things in factories, we then throw them away or burn them uh, when they're no longer needed. And we've started to come to terms with, well, we should probably figure that out too, right? So there's a lot of whys. Why do businesses shift and why must we shift? You could see a lot of whys there. So what then? What are some of the shifts that we're seeing? Well, here in, uh, you know, in, in consulting land where we see a ton of businesses, thousands and thousands, here are some of the fundamental shifts that we've seen. And really it boils down to six and I'm gonna go deep, more deeply into one of them, but I'll or sort of gloss over what we're seeing. Well, when we think about shifting a business you have to understand that, you know, at any point in time, there's the now, right? And there's some edge that you want to shift toward, there's some future you want to shift to. And most companies and most businesses aren't going to shift all the way to some crazy future that doesn't really exist yet. You're going to find some interesting paths and, and you know, in the middle of all this, and you're going to shift to a place that's actually feels comfortable for you, for the leadership team, for the culture, for your customers and so forth. So you're not prob probably going beyond the edge, perhaps like a, like a Tesla or a SpaceX would, but you'll get close and you'll get close to that edge. And we call this the shift. In this shift, you know, where, where might value be created? And this is a question we ask every single time. And how do we actually solve big problems? Well, when we think about shifting then, it isn't just shifting a business. The way we think about things is in terms of business models. Um, and in a business model context, we even think a little bit more deeply about this using something called a business model canvas. And so what I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to start showing you a few different shifts. And, and while I'm not going to touch deeply on the construct of business model canvases, and I'm sure many of you have seen these before, I'm, at some point I'm going to pull one up. I'm going to use that as a way to discuss and describe what a shift might look like. But in the meantime, hold on, buckle your seats, and I want to show, show you some of the shifts we're seeing out there, and specifically six different shifts that are not mutually exclusive. You can actually put them together, um, and, you know, and how those are sort of showing up in the world. So one of the first shifts that we see quite a bit is something we're calling pipeline to platform. And in pipeline to platform, you can think of it this way. Think of the Apple. Now, Apple is a company we all know and love or don't love, uh, for a very long time, Apple was built on a pipeline of hardware, right? It would create products, 
It would manufacture those products, uh, you know, usually with manufacturing partners. It would sell it to us, and then it would do that over and over and over and over again. And Apple was the company that was developing this stuff, and we were the consumers buying this stuff. However, what you may or may not know is Apple has largely, while it's still a huge hardware company, has largely started set, it started to set its future and its future strategy, not around hardware, but around services, platform services. So you can think of things like the App Store, the new Apple News, books, music, uh, you know, Apple Plus, right? It's, it's new on-demand TV thing. All these things are now platforms, which means Apple is not developing any longer while still developing the hardware. It's not developing everything just for consumers and developing all the content for consumers. It's developing a platform that allows other people to develop the content that we may want, whether that's apps or news or books or games or whatever. And then a whole other side of that, which is people who are going to consume that stuff. And when you think about platforms, then Apple is actually developing the platforms and maintaining the platforms, allowing anyone to connect anything you know, with any kind of content. Uh, and really, really interesting. And we're seeing lots of companies move from this pipeline, this straight through thing, to just connecting different groups of, of, uh, of consumers, businesses, whatever it might be, to get what they need and want. We're also seeing, of course, a big physical to digital movement. And, and you can call this digital transformation or digital strategy. Call it what you will. It isn't always necessarily moving fully from physical to fully digital. Often it's, it's actually just as much about taking a physical product that you make today or sell today and augmenting it with digital. For instance, Disney is doing this. And if you haven't, well, you won't go to a Disney park for a little while now. They just, they just uh, uh, put out a notice that they're not going to open as early as they thought they would. But when you do get to go back, what you'll see at Disney parks nowadays and any Disney experience out there, and you'll start to see it in their stores as well, is a connection now, not just with physical and having, you know, sort of physical experiences, but a connection to digital. And with something called My Magic Plus, Disney has actually enabled a full physical to digital transformation whereby you start your experience way up front buying tickets from Disney to go to a park, for instance, or a hotel or a restaurant or a store or whatever it might be. When you get there, they hand you over a wristband. And with that wristband and other technologies, not only can Disney track you, for instance, in a park, but you can start to use that as, as a currency, right? As your wallet. And any point in time, that then bridges the physical experience to a digital experience, now making things a little bit more seamless, but also it allows Disney to put things in front of you and actually extend the experience, not just at a park, but beyond the park, at the hotels, when you get home with photos and everything else. And so what we're seeing is lots of companies, if you've got physical products and services, you're augmenting them with digital experiences that keep something going and get something going way before the physical to way after. We're also seeing a lot of this shareholder to stakeholder movement. Uh, Unilever is a big one in this. What shareholder to stakeholder is, is sort of foregoing the idea that we have to put out quarterly reports and really work specifically for our shareholders and opening in the whole, the whole business model up to saying, you know what? we're gonna serve stakeholders. That means we're here to serve our company, our employees and the culture they're in. We're here to serve our shareholders for sure, 
and all the other investors, but also the communities and the globe all in one. And what we're seeing in this is when companies are doing this, and we see a lot of big companies doing this, but small companies too, and B Corps as well, and some of these small companies in doing this, not only is there a lot of goodwill, but actually they're able to function very differently in a business model context uh, because they're actually trying to serve humanity in a totally different way. All of a sudden their value propositions turn into something different. All of a sudden, uh, you know, the way they make money is quite different and the way they actually put put value out in the world and collect value is quite different as well. And so we're seeing a lot of this as another shift. As part of that or somewhat connected to that is another shift we're, see we're seeing out there that's called singular to circular. And a circular shift kind of goes hand in hand in many ways with that stakeholder, uh, you know, that shareholder to stakeholder shift, which is how can we not just be more sustainable and environmentally uh, conscious and so forth, but how do we take resources, and often in a, phys in a physical sense, how do we take resources that may be waste uh, as part of the process or at the end of the life cycle for a product and reuse those to create new products, new services, something new that's part of now a whole new perhaps category of products. And I think a really interesting example here is Nike. Whether you know it or not, Nike has a whole program that's been going now for years whereby you can recycle your shoes at Nike stores. And it's not at every Nike store in the world. I think it's only 70 or 100 now out of 270 stores worldwide. But if you turn your shoes in and other materials into Nike, Nike will take that stuff, will grind down, it's Nike grind, will grind down those materials and use the constituent parts, for instance, in new shoes, but also in new, wholly new products um, where it actually sells product to track companies that are building tartan tracks uh, and other athletics companies who are building things that, are, that need rubberized materials. Nike's built a whole system and a whole process, but a whole new set of products that comes from waste. And so it's not just about being environmentally sensitive, environmentally conscious. In fact, Nike is finding a new life for resources and new money and value from those resources where otherwise they would have gone to landfills uh, and, and been burned up, right, or buried. We also see tons of companies wanting to do something like this, which is linear to exponential, uh, not to be confused, by the way, with, with pipeline to platform. Linear to exponential is, is uh, quite a bit different than some of the other ones here. Uh, the way I like to describe it is this, is how can you as a company build a business model that it can actually create more value than you put into it. Netflix is such a company. So think about it this way. Netflix started as a very linear business model company. Uh, it, it rented DVDs via mail. And what that meant was that it sort of only knew what people wanted by what they rented and what they had. And it could only ship out DVDs based on how many DVDs the company had and how many people wanted those DVDs, right? Over time, of course, Netflix learned a lot more. They incorporated AI, artificial intelligence into the back end, and they sort of they started figuring out what more of what people wanted. The moment that Netflix did a shift to really mostly online streaming, it still actually serves out DVDs as well, but the moment it went to streaming, the company moved to something called an exponential business model, which means 
the more it learns about you, the more value it captures from you and from me and learns about us, the more it's able to create new value increasingly, increasingly, not only finding new movies, but actually assigning on new producers and production companies to create, you know, wholly new uh, uh, shows for specifically for Netflix. And it can keep doing this and doing this. In fact, it's created an engine that creates way more value than the actual value it puts into it. And it, much of it is done automatically. And that's very exponential. It creates exponential value from just a little bit of value that it puts into it. And finally, the last one I wanted to talk about is, is products to services. And again, all these things can go together. Most companies don't go through just one shift. They put a few of these things together. But this is what I wanted to go and do a bit more deeply because it really resonates in this current COVID context that we're in. And there's a few really cool examples for this as well. Uh, one is Philips Signify. Uh, Philips, well, Philips has done lighting for a long time, and specifically in commercial lighting, uh, Philips was always selling commercial bulbs and fixtures and so forth to, uh, you know, big warehouses and, and, uh, and buildings and so forth. A few years ago, Philips moved over from selling lights and fixtures to selling lighting as a service, lighting as an actual utility. What that means now is when you want lighting inside of a building, you can actually sign on with Philips and Philips will actually take care of all of it and take care of the actual light. What that means is no longer do you ever screw in a bulb or find that you know, something's not well lit. You call Philips or even more so, they have sensors in most of these, these are smart bulbs, they know about these. And now it's beholden on Philips to actually make sure that you have enough light and enough uh, you know, electricity and everything else, you know, power, light power, lumens, to go around when you need them and at the right cost, right? And so Philips now takes care of light in commercial settings. BMW, right? And now BMW and Mercedes have paired up and now against, I think they've split ways. But BMW is finding something similar. While BMW still sells cars, in fact, BMW set up a whole new set of services for using cars, for renting cars when you need them as a service. In fact, they're finding huge traction here because this company believes this is also the future. You can even do this with denim. And so when it comes to jeans, there's a, there's a Mud Jeans is a, uh, is a Dutch company. And all of these are services. And we're seeing huge movement in these from product to service, right? These big models. In fact, you can see this is now from a couple months ago, uh, almost exactly. But we started to see a ton of in the middle of this, you know, of this lockdown, we saw a ton of articles like this one about why these reign supreme. Well, they reign supreme because people need services, but we, we're finding that people don't necessarily need those products. We just want to get our jobs done. And when companies help us do that well, we're even happier. So what does this look like? Well, I want to go a little bit into a, a business model, a business model canvas to show you what this might look like. And then I want to open it up for some questions here, but I'll do this first and then we'll open it up for questions. So there's another example here, and this is Medtronic. And, and Medtronic's an old company. It's been around for more than 100 years, I believe. Uh, and it's a medical equipment company. Really, that's what it's been about. It's turned into, however, a medical services company. And here's what I mean. When Medtronic first came around, it, it had basically a business model that was about selling 
medical equipment, right? And what that meant was that it had high-end products and tools and resources, right? Those were its value propositions. Its customer segments were really healthcare professionals. And then of course, indirectly the patients who, who need some procedure or something like that. Um, it would connect directly, you know, sort of let's go further as a channel, connect directly these value propositions through salespeople to the healthcare professionals. And basically they kept customer relationships going for a long time with healthcare professionals by saying, hey, we're here to relieve pain, restore health, extend life. We have the best products and services to do that. And of course, what that meant was that its revenue streams came specifically from selling products, right? And some maintenance and so forth along with that. To get all this done, of course, it relied on, on factories and warehouses and engineering design and producing as big activities. Its partners in all of this stuff were the patient organizations, the health authorities, payers, uh, insurance companies and so forth that would pay for all this stuff. And of course, cost came from innovation, R&D, people, marketing and sales. That's a very typical product centric business model. And this is a business model canvas that I just spoke through. However, today, it looks very, very different. Today, their value propositions for Medtronic, which has moved into a totally service-centric model for most of its business, is that it actually, it promises enhanced operational performance. And so what it, it doesn't really talk about anymore selling its products. It says, hey, we can help you operate in your operating rooms and, and in your recovery rooms more effectively. We can, in fact, we can improve patient experiences and make sure you have exactly what you need to do these things. In doing that, actually, now it doesn't just go to physicians and healthcare providers, but it also goes to hospitals overall. In fact, it's expanded its base beyond very specialized discussions with specialized, um, you know, um, surgeons, for instance, now to the entire hospital saying, hey, we can help you operate more efficiently. The way it does this and the channels it uses is it uses case study that really partners now with physicians and healthcare providers and co-authors case studies about how we can actually extend life. And in that partnership, right, it really thinks of itself as a partner in hospitals. So how does it do this? Well, it actually, first and foremost, it signs on long-term contracts with these hospitals where it shares risk and has predictable fee structures. And what, what I mean by that is rather than selling a piece of equipment now, it actually, in many cases, it has a no cure, no pay fee structure, which says, hey, we believe these sets of procedures will require this kind of technology. And we could also bolt on this kind of technology. And in fact, we believe this so much that based on the procedure, if you are, you know, if this procedure goes well, you're going to pay this when it doesn't go well, you don't pay or you only pay a little bit of this, right? And so they're really partnering with their, with the hospitals and the physicians to get their jobs done in a very service-like mode. Also operationally helping the, the, to support the hospital who doesn't really want to buy a bunch of equipment if it's not going to be used. Today to get that all done is Expertise and knowledge. Yes, it's, it partners with its uh, with its uh, uh, another company to build this. In fact, the same company, another side of the company, still builds the physical uh, equipment. But it uses expertise and knowledge as a key resource. And of course, it tailors solutions and and now also helps to run the back office so that usage of this stuff is more efficient. 
it partners with the device side of the company is also financers to, to get this stuff in there. And of course, the cost structure is helping to build whole turnkey solutions in labs, uh, you know, inside of hospitals, but also putting experts in those hospitals is a big cost because again, it really wants this, this company Medtronic really wants to see this stuff through and sees it now itself now as a partner in the hospital, leasing technology to the hospital based on procedures, based on the effectiveness and efficacy of its, of its devices and not on actually just buying devices. Now, I'm gonna give this quickly. Our point of view is, you know, we must focus then on providing job-centric services. And often now in this age, day and age, it also means digital jobs and services to, to get that done. Um, before I go on, I'd love and I'd love to show you what this all means. I'd love to actually open it up for to see if Eddie has any questions queued up, and then I'll sort of keep going and we just have a few more minutes here. Awesome, Justin. Yeah, we've got a few coming in already. Um, a shout out to the audience. Don't be shy. If you have questions about Please. how any of these business models are working, um, stick them up there in the chat and we will get to as many of them as mm -hmm. possible. Here is one, Justin, uh, well, about the Medtronic example that you were just yeah. talking about yeah. from Brian, who asks, for the Medtronic example, is there a conflict of interest if Medtronic is paid on usage while the hospital wants efficiency mm. and simplicity? There, that's a great question. So I don't work in a hospital uh, or a <laughs> hospital setting. I, but you play a doctor on TV. I play a doctor on TV, and I certainly play a, a strategic therapist now and again. There is no conflict of interest there, as far as I know. There's no conflict of interest because, first of all, hospital and hospital settings are very complex. And hospitals are charging for procedures, uh, as you probably know. Hospitals charge for procedures. They charge for time sitting in a, in a hospital bed or in the OR. Uh, and they charge for you know any kinds of fluids or anything else that they put in your body. And on the other side of that, what you've got is you've got Medtronic basically leasing devices or, or bringing things into the operating room or the, the surgery theater on an as-needed basis. And so I think what's super interesting there is if, you, if it works this way, and I think many hospitals, it doesn't always work exactly this way, but it, it should work this way. If it works this way, as patients, we actually would, we should end up paying less in many cases because in this case, hospitals aren't paying to buy really expensive devices. They're only paying for the pieces they need when they need them. And so there's no conflict of interest. In fact, I'd say it's the other way around. There's more of a direct flow through as patients, we pay for a procedure which uses a device. And then at some point that fee gets broken down and the hospital takes part of that fee and gives it over to Medtronic of course, keeps another part of the fee for operational and uh, and profit. You know, if it's a if it's a for-profit hospital or if it's not a for-profit hospital, it all goes to operations. So I'd say it's probably somewhat different, or you know, uh, and maybe the opposite of that. Again, I don't work in a hospital, but no, I don't see it as a conflict of interest. And there's a lot of hospitals that do this today. So it's just it's about leasing or using the machinery and paying for it when you need it, which is very much the same way we as patients pay for it. Yeah, here's one, Justin, from Melissa, who's asking about uh, subscription models. She yeah. says, 
how sustainable is a subscription model in yeah. a world where budgets are shifting drastically? Yeah. Are you ever without the risk of cancellation year to year? No. So uh, <laughs> no is the answer. <laughs> subscription fatigue is a real thing. Um, now, there are two sides of this answer. There are many sides, really. There's a couple sides to the answer. One is for consumers, especially subscription fatigue is a real thing. Having said that, depending on the service, many companies are, are finding that when they give enough access with enough different levels of access for different prices, sometimes freemium being a thing, right? You get something free and then you pay for something else when you want it. You don't, people don't get the subscription fatigue because, you know, subscription fatigue comes when you have just too many and many of them are high priced things. Uh, but it's not so when you find lower cost things. Uh, in a B2B setting, however, you often get operational people looking at these things and yes, finding when they're not getting a lot of value out of subscription, they'll get rid of it like that. So the answer to a lot of this when it comes to subscription, uh, you know, I think are a couple things. One is long-term contract, right? If it's, a, if it's something, especially in a business setting, B2B, where it, this is really going to help value in an operational setting or a sales setting or something else, long-term contracts can really help. In a long-term contract, then it's beholden and it's, you know, on the, on the company creating the value here uh, to really partner, like Medtronic, partner with the company you're selling something to in that subscription setting to really help continually create more and more value so that they can't do without you. Um, number two, when or even when that's not, uh, you know, when that's not a thing, when you can't sign up for a long-term value, another way to think about subscription then is, is the price right, right? Are you giving an, are you, is the value exchange equal in some way? Uh, and or can you turn off subscription and turn on pay per use, right? So, or have both, right? Have subscription with a lower pay per use or no pay per use, or say, hey, we, you can go without subscription, but we're happy to offer you pay per use. And so there are plenty of business models out there to help get over the subscription uh, fatigue hump or, you know, not subscription fatigue when we actually just don't have the budget anymore. Uh, but you have to build a business model to take on that burden. And that means you have to put in the right they put the right things in place to actually partner with the customer to show them that they're getting real value. Hope that helps. Very much. We've got a couple more coming in. Do you want to take some time to wrap up and then? Yeah, let me let me wrap up and then the we'll okay. and then we'll come back to them. So you know what I wanted to tell, talk to you now, and I, then I want to sort of wrap it up with what does this look like in the real world and building this stuff. And I, I don't want it to go much more than about five or seven minutes here. Um, so. When we then talk about products, you know, the shift from product to service, uh, this is what it often looks like. For instance, when we have product, we're often thinking about margin focused. Uh, when we talk about services, then what we're really talking about is higher quality and performance and solving customers' jobs to be done. And this goes back to that question that someone just asked, which is, we can't just give away commodity stuff with this anymore. We really have to solve a real problem and do it uh, with a lot of performance and quality, right? We have to partner on often to do that. This also means we don't use retail channels most often. We often own the distribution, so we have to take that on. Again, there's some real uh, you know, opportunity here to create new experiences in doing that. It also means we can create 
long-term relationships and, and even collect data to create better relationships and help us actually craft and curate something better out of all that. In this pay per use, right, in this, in this solving problems, we go from paying per use to paying per unit to pay per use monthly, whatever it may be, right, the subscription type model. It also means, while yes, we may still need to produce things, it now means we have to maintain more, but also a resource that we are, that we are gaining from doing, going to services, data. We get lots of information about people and the way they're using products and services that we used to sell. Now we can build some of that pipeline in here so we can understand how they're using it and we can make things better for them or tailor to their needs. But it also means that we're now not just producing, we have to make sure that we're managing our assets and we, we're, we're actually distributing things properly through fleets or whatever. But it does mean we have to partner to do a lot of this stuff as well. We're moving our cost structures from materials to financing uh, and technology and people. And often we're accounting for negative impacts in this value creation by keeping things in the cycle. And we can often even use that as part of our value proposition as well. So this is a full business model shift. Again, I didn't want to touch too deeply on business model canvases, but these are some of the things you have to think about when you think about shifts and specifically in this case, a product to service shift, right? So some of those design patterns then are dressing jobs to be done, keeping things going, quality products, recurring revenue, investing experience. You heard me say all these things. And if, irrespective of that shift, you must understand first and foremost, how does your current business model work? If you can understand that, then you can understand how you might make shifts and what you'll need to make those shifts. So how do you do all this stuff? And how might we design our own shifts? First and foremost, I don't believe that you can really create any one of these shifts without and do it well without employing design-led processes. So what do I mean by design-led processes? What I mean is we can't just go from like, oh, we're going to do this and just go do it. What I mean is we must really understand what are we working with? Who are our customers? What's our current business model? What's the context that we live in? Bring groups of people together inside of your organization and ideate, create new possible business model options, new possible avenues that you could go after. But then don't just go after them. Go out there and as quickly as possible, try to prototype and validate with customers, even with non-customers to figure out what resonates with them? What might work? How might these things work? Because when you do this, you're going you're gonna to spend very little time, very little money, and maybe just a little bit of effort, but you're really going to figure out what's going to work, what doesn't work, without spending a ton of money and a ton, a ton of time that you don't have uh, failing in big, big ways, right? And this is all about informing your point of view. Step two in all of this stuff, you have to be able to scale design and innovation then in your organization. Because if you're going to go through a shift, you, re you must realize that it's not going to be the first shift. It's going to be a shift of many, many, many shifts. It's going to be many business models, probably, that have to go through these changes. All of that starts with a really strong strategy and ambition and a want, a vision to go through these changes and go through these shifts and see some of these things through. If you have that strategy and ambition, then you have to also start thinking about how do we set up ourselves organizationally to take these things on? Do we have the right capabilities and mindset to actually go through these changes and who's needed? What does our culture look like? What processes and tools do we need if we don't have them in house, like business models? 
are we using tools like this today that can quickly allow us to prototype business models or do we need something like that to help us here? You also have to understand if you're going through shifts in this design-led, these design-led processes that you also have gonna need to sign up for new metrics. How do we actually measure what we're doing and what resources do we put towards different things as they go through their life cycle so that actually we're not spending all of our money in one area and negating another but actually we can spread it out efficiently and effectively based on where things are. And of course, different growth strategies require different kinds of actions, right? So if we're gonna be innovating and building shifts sort of in our existing core and our existing segments, then you know maybe we don't need as much, but if we're going adjacent, we probably need a bit more. And if we're going transformational, we're gonna go into brand new industries and brand new segmentation, perhaps we need something totally different. And then the third step in this whole thing is really building a portfolio. What you'll find is as you go through business model shifts, most companies don't just have one business model. They have many different business models and sometimes a different business model for each value proposition or product or service is that, well, you want to be able to not just do one at a time. You want to be able to measure all of them, including new ideas against everything else. And so we think of this as something called a business model maturity and a portfolio approach. In a portfolio approach, you might think of this. You have a bunch of new things that are coming online, new ideas, and those are about value creation and seeking value creation. Where might we find value in the world? And then you have other, a whole other set of products that are maybe more mature that have been going for a while where you're going to find more growth out of them. And in doing that, if you use things like business models, well, you can actually start to put stage gates in there where some products you just want to learn. You don't want to put it out there broadly. You just want to learn about where are people finding value. In other cases, you want to start building out value and figuring out, okay, now we're starting to validate, but now we want to find there's a, there, where, the, where the solution, the problem solution fit is. And as things grow, you'll probably start to find that you're pro finding product market fit and scale and so forth. When you do it this way, what it means is you can have lots of different business models in lots of different stages, which also means you can put different resources in those stages and track these things very, very differently. In doing all this and, put, and building a portfolio approach to business model shifts, you're also systematic, systematically de-risking all these shifts as you go along, right? It means you can actually throw some of them out when they're not working. And you do that by applying different kinds of metrics metrics to these things. So for instance, in a learning metric, you may only care what number of invest time, money, effort, or data in don't really care their penetration rate or anything in the very, you just want to learn about customers. At some later gate, you want to find out what's the penetration rate. At some later gate, you want to find out what the profit margin is. But you don't care about these things all together at the very beginning. You just care about one at a time. And when you put these different metrics, it does mean also to figure out where they and sorry, I'm seeing my internet's a little unstable. Okay, now you probably have me again. Um, you could probably figure out where those go. And it also means when you sunset, you can also take apart their constituent pieces in that business model and put them back into that IP and other things and, and rebuild from those. And of course, this funding and resourcing goes along with it. In most cases, we see this with companies. This doesn't come from me. This comes from a study that was done in, uh, and published in HBR, right? Most companies invest here on the left 
but you find out the project, the project, you know, the return comes from big, from transformational projects. Well, when you go to this metered metric funding portfolio approach, it gives you every opportunity in the world to try new transformational things without going broke. And so here you're going to upfront in very new transformational things, give a little bit at a time, little drips of funding, constrained products, constrained prototypes of things. But when they cross a threshold or a gate, you give them a little more and allow them to try something new. And then you give them a little bit more and a little bit more. And when you do that, you're finding that actually you're going to find where new value exists, who's going to actually exchange that value with you. And that is exactly where you're going to be able to shift lots of things that you have, lots of business models you have inside of your, your own portfolio and manage the entire thing overall. So that's all I wanted to say. That's a lot. Uh, that's a lot said very, very quickly. So why don't we open it up to a few more questions. Uh, and of course, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, you can ask me more questions there. I'm always happy to connect with people. And of course, here's some other resources where you can find uh, some of this stuff. So Eddie, Beautiful. what else we got? We've got a few. So right. we had a few questions come in with a similar theme. Okay. And I'm going to choose to quote uh, Deanna here, who mm -hmm. summarized it succinctly. It goes like this. When migrating to a new business model, how are you leveraging existing yeah. assets, processes, and customers? Mm -hmm. And I would add employees yeah. Yeah. during that change as well. I, I was thinking yeah. as you were talking about Netflix earlier, yep. when they made that shift, they probably couldn't get all of their warehouse guys to become data scientists to make that shift. So so yeah, there was maybe some collateral damage there, right? There there was. Yep, there was. And and there 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 can be. I think what's super interesting about business model shifts is that um, what you find is there's no there's no right or wrong answer to this. What you'll find is that in any shift, it's just as much about making a shift and moving to a new business model as it is about moving chess pieces around on a chessboard and figuring out where you can utilize your strategic resources properly. And those strategic resources uh, in a business model sense, there's nine boxes that you're working with which means you actually are taking care of things in different ways in your new business models that you may not have thought about, but now actually might require those warehouse people, right? In different, to do different things than they did before. So there's no right or wrong answer. Um, the, the real answer is that when you're going through a business model shift, the best thing you can do is first and foremost is really understand. And I had mentioned this, you know, when we, when we sort of shifted over to this section is, you know, the thing you must, must do, I think it was here, you must understand how your current business model works. That is a must, must, must. You must understand what, how does it work? How does it create, deliver, and capture value now? And then you must also start to develop new business models next to it. And you can start to draw those lines between things to say, oh, well, you know what? If I do this new value proposition with this new revenue stream, which is subscription, I actually end up needing people to do this other thing, which we weren't doing before, but now we need. Can I take some of the people who used to do this other thing and take them to this? Does that even make sense? And so you must actually look at this almost like a game board where you understand your current business model and then understand what your new needs might be and start to make strategic 
dotted lines between things so that you can start to build a new lay of the land, utilizing some of your old resources, bringing in new resources when needed, uh, but really shifting things around on a board. That's how that's done um, and it's done every day. And yes, sometimes you're finding that people, people are being made redundant, uh, which certainly isn't always pleasant or fun, but plenty of other times you find that people actually are needed for new roles to do new things that they weren't doing before, but that they're perfectly capable of doing. Um, we are over time, Justin, okay, which is just shoot. a testament to how much Sorry. good information you've given us to chew on. But I'm gonna let you answer this one real quick because okay. it's a fun one. Is your new book going to be available in an ebook version? It is, so uh -huh. uh, great question. <laughs> when we got into this and we started writing a new book, we realized, you know what? Lots of people have been asking for ebooks. We were used to designing these really cool looking books that could be done paperback with beautiful pictures and everything else. And we said, okay guys, we gotta be constrained here and design for an ebook as well. We did that, our new book is designed for ebooks, it's in grayscale, so it's not all pretty pictures in color, but it is pretty pictures in grayscale and specifically designed in now ebook format so that it can be done, used beautifully in paperback or hardback, but also equally beautifully in, in an ebook. Wonderful. I'm going to end with our okay. favorite question to ask our guests. I asked it to you last time, so I'll be curious to see if you've rethought the answer mm -hmm. any, but it goes like this If you could tell our audience today two things mm -hmm. only, that you want them to do differently based on what we've spoken about today, yeah, yeah. what would those two things be? Yeah, okay, this is a good one. Uh, the first thing I'd, I would tell, tell everyone to do is if you haven't done this already, bring together a small team, a core team or several small core teams inside of your company and build out what you believe your current business model is today, how it works in a business model canvas preferably. And in those same teams, Put a list together where it's your strengths are and where your weaknesses are. I think you'd be super surprised when you bring people together uh, to understand how do they believe the business really works, where do they create value and deliver and capture value, and how, what do they believe its strengths and weaknesses are. Based on those strengths and weaknesses, number two, I would use some of these teams to number two, start developing shifts and start developing new potential ways to move forward that will help you align with your weaknesses or you align with your strengths and utilize those strengths and get away, get a, you know, overcome those weaknesses with wholly new business model, wholly new shifts. And it's really, really effective. And it's really actually quite easy to do when you, when you do it in groups, prototyping together uh, in small, small, you know, small, small windows of time. That's it. Fantastic. So much good stuff to chew on. Uh, great comments coming up, uh, uh, thanking you in the chat as well. So it's not just me saying that. Cool. Uh, audience, if you had more questions, and I know you did because we didn't get to them all, you saw Justin's invite to connect with him there on LinkedIn, linkedin.com slash in slash J-M Lokitz, L-O-K-I-T-Z. There you go. To get back to him again. And uh, a quick thank you, of course, to our partners today product development days don't forget to check out their event on october 27th through 30th of which pragmatic institute is a platinum partner and until we see you again stay safe out there stay healthy and have a fantastic week thanks justin